0: This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the roaring 20s. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now, she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on Chapter 6, and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android.
1: Um, I have an important question. I just followed Creeper's pod, and the first suggested for me follow is Nice
0: Nasty.
1: Which
0: makes me think that it's
1: someone someone you know or someone I know, Uh, but uh, definitely a
0: mirror selfie. No, God. Hey, creep. Hey, creeper. (laughs) Welcome to the first ever episode of the Creepers podcast, where we'll talk about creepers from serial killers to con artists. I'm your host, Kristen Williams, and each week I'm going to tell my friend and true crime newbie, MoGab, one of my favorite true crime stories. Hey, hey, MoGab. Hey, sis.
1: (laughs) I'm so excited. I am a total newbie and a total creep, so I can't wait.
0: This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, PROSE proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. PROSE is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one of a kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Let's get right into this week's episode. So this week we are talking about the case. Are you ready? Yeah, um- I really am. <laughs> This is the case of Richard Glossop, who I have mentioned to you before. Yeah. Um, he is on death row in Oklahoma. And this case makes me insane. Yeah. Um, there, so there might be some yelling going on. Okay. Uh, he, he's been on the brink of execution three times. And once again, the state is trying to murder him, even though there are so many questions surrounding the case. Oh, and also he didn't do it. So stay being Oklahoma still. Yeah, mhm. Okay. So I've been following this case for a while and I actually remember the day the last time that he was supposed to be executed. It was September 30th, 2015, and I just remember I'd been on pins and needles for the few weeks before just checking for updates, you know, hoping for some kind of miracle like a stay of execution, anything. And there'd actually been a last minute plea for a stay, but the U.S. Supreme Court had denied it eight to one. And I just remember thinking, you know, why is the state of Oklahoma so determined to kill him? And I was working that day and I remember the execution was set for like 1.30 in the afternoon. And I don't remember the exact time, but I remember checking the time and it was like five minutes after. And I just had this feeling of just overwhelming sadness, knowing that Oklahoma had just murdered someone that I can't say beyond a reasonable doubt committed this crime. And I don't think anyone who's been given all the evidence would be able to say that either. So I've really, I'm really setting you up to sway your opinion. (laughs) Um, But anyways, the first thing I did when I got off work that day was look it up. And I just almost cried when I realized that just before he was set to be executed, There was a last minute stay of execution from the governor due to a lethal injection issue. So it didn't actually have anything to do with his case. It wasn't because they thought he might be innocent. It was just a technicality, but he was literally like Lazarus coming back from the dead. Um, Like I thought he was dead. And then a couple of hours later, I realized, oh my gosh, he's alive. So again, I've really set you up for like, to give me a completely honest opinion, but I do want to ask you before we get into the case, what is your opinion on the death penalty? Yeah. So, okay. You said September 2015, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. That's so crazy. That's five years ago. Um, I mean, we're in September
0: 2020. So that's five years ago. Oh my ago. gosh. Almost to the day. It's September. Yeah. 15. This episode will come out like months from now, but right now it's September 19th when we're recording this. So Yeah five years. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so part of that, in thinking about my
1: opinion, I'll be totally honest, even in 2015, my opinion would probably be different. I like you, I don't know if you said this, but I'm from Texas, too. So I feel like a lot of my feelings about capital punishment and the death penalty were kind of made up for me. I am like a true loud and proud Texas girl. So um, I think that I felt very strongly like, yeah, put it in the fast lane, (laughs) like let's fast track this, you know, which sounds really crude. And I have moved around a little bit. I moved to Ohio and then, you know, I'm in Kentucky now, which is a little bit southern. But I think just really broadening my horizons and having my own opinions. I used to have opinions of what my family thought, what my mom thought. And now I think that I really feel differently. And so I, this is probably going to infuriate people. I don't know how I feel. I do feel like it's a case by case basis, but I do feel strongly that there is a lot that can happen with individuals when they are in the criminal justice system and the judicial like process. And so I don't necessarily feel the same way I did even in 2015, or like I did in the early 2000s about the death penalty, my opinion has really changed. So I'm excited to hear this case. I don't know anything about it. So I'm excited to hear.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm similar to you where I you know, when I was younger, I had different opinions about the death penalty. And I think as you just get more information and you hear more stories, you know, your opinions should change. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the death penalty. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of the reason why people believe in it is they, you know, they think it deters crime, keeps people from doing these terrible things.
1: Oh, for Um, sure.
0: An eye for an eye, you know? Right. And then revenge. Yeah, that's definitely another one. Like you killed somebody, now we kill you. And then they think it's cheaper. Like why, why are we going to use taxpayer funds to food and and clothe and house this person for the rest of their life instead of just, Mm -hmm. you know, we can just kill them. Not that this is the same, but we are currently in my house rewatching The
1: Office. I don't know if you've watch Mm -hmm. that regularly. But there's this episode about um, a character that had been to prison, and they were like, obviously making fun of it, but talking about all of the benefits this person got, like (laughs) Harvard Law classes, like all of these skills, uh, which is obviously a play on it, but very funny in terms of like, that is truly how some people's
0: opinion is formed, you know, like the benefits that they're getting. Yeah. And I think that that goes into another thing of, people look at prison as a a punishment. We have a very punitive justice system. It's, you did a bad thing. Now here's your punishment. We don't look at, at prison as an opportunity for rehabilitation. So we have so many repeat offenders that get out of prison and they, you know, they go on to offend again. And so having things like college classes that it, it makes a lot of people mad like I'm mm-hmm. paying for these prisoners. Oh, if I just go and and rob a store, I'll get to go to college for free too. They have this mentality, but if you look at it, it's what is best for our society as a whole. Educate people, give them another opportunity, let them, you know, make their life better and then they won't continue to repeat. So, but back to what I was saying about it being people thinking that it's cheaper. It's actually more expensive to keep somebody in prison for life because of appeals. They get a million appeals and so that costs a lot of money and it's it's really expensive to execute somebody. And then there've been a lot of studies done looking at the correlation between death penalties and violent crime and there isn't any. It's not a deterrent. They've shown that prison really isn't a deterrent and they've definitely shown that the death penalty isn't a deterrent. Nobody's like, "Oh yeah, I totally go kill that guy except uh, I don't want to get the death penalty, so I'll just, you know, I'll go to Michigan where they don't have it." <laughs> Uh, Yeah. Okay. So let's get into this case of Richard Glossop. That is just infuriating to me. Okay. So like I said, this is a case I've been following really closely for maybe six or seven years now. But the information for this episode comes largely from the documentary killing Richard Glossop. And Mm -hmm. I'll list full sources in the show notes. So Richard Glossop was one of 16 kids. Uh, He has seven brothers and eight (gasps) sisters. I know 16.
1: Sorry. I know. My cousin has 10 kids and I'm like, girls,
0: sit down. I know, I know. At the time, this is 1997. Mm-hmm. At the time, he was the manager of this rundown motel called the Best Budget Inn. <laughs> and he is charged with the hire and payment for the murder of his boss, Barry Vantrese, which was done by the maintenance man of the motel, Justin Sneed. There's zero physical evidence implicating him in the crime, and almost the entire case against him was that Justin Sneed said he told him to do it, uh, and he agreed to testify against Richard in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. So what happened? Barry Vantrese was 54 years old, he was the father of seven kids, and he was from Lawton, Oklahoma. Why do these people have so many kids? I don't know. I, <laughs> I want zero. <laughs> I don't know. There's no like religious aspect that I could find. I don't know. Did you Google that? I okay. did not. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> He'd spent most of his life in banking before investing in three rundown motels that he called the best budget in. So lots of drug activity, sex work, like shady stuff going on there. Um, to, really, to really paint the picture for you, they share a parking lot with a strip club. So, oh, Uh, as a former Waffle House waitress, I can, um, (laughs) the picture is painted. Excellent. Okay. So on the night of January 6th, 1997, Barry stopped by the Oklahoma motel at 6 p.m. and took care of some things that he needed to do. He was there a couple of hours and apparently had about $3,000 in cash that Richard had given him when he closed down the drawers that night at the motel. It was mostly a cash business, if, if you couldn't have guessed that. (laughs) Same as the waffle (laughs) Yep Richard who'd been managing the motel for two years And had often received bonuses for meeting or exceeding sales goals uh, Lived in an apartment behind the motel with his girlfriend Deanna So around 8 p.m. Barry leaves the motel and stashes the receipt money under the front seat of his car He was under a lot of financial pressure and he was hoarding cash He had about $23,000 in the trunk of his car So Barry heads to the Tulsa Inn. He calls the Tulsa manager and tells him that if his wife calls to tell her that he'll be home in like five and a half hours, which they didn't really understand why it would take him. It was only a three hour drive, but he didn't end up going to Tulsa anyway. So Barry has a wife and a girlfriend. No, Richard Richard. Glossop is the one that lives with his girlfriend behind the motel. Barry Treese is the manager of the motel or yeah, the owner, okay. the owner of them. Sorry. Barry is the owner. Richard's the manager. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he doesn't even end up going back to Tulsa. Instead, he comes back to the inn and he head straight to room 102. No one knows why he changed his plans or why he said it would take him so long to get there in the first place. And the documentary said that no one knows why he would stay in that room at all, that he'd never stayed in that room before. But an article I read said that the motel desk clerk who testified at trial said that it was the nicest room at the motel and that Barry often stayed there. So two people saying two different things. I don't really know what the motels is- really have a nicer. Okay. It's funny that you asked that <laughs> because so this sweet? one this one specifically said it was so nice because it had a waterbed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, that's what I'm looking for when I'm saying in a budget mentality. Oh, I, uh, really I
0: really want that waterbed. Yeah, so that
1: screams
0: 1997 though. It's, it does, yes. Yeah, 1997. My mom had a waterbed back in 1997. <laughs>
1: Or maybe it was my
0: dad. It was my dad. (laughs) (laughs) That makes more sense. Anyway, according to Richard, Barry had apparently used sex workers at the motel a couple of times. Richard had seen them leave his room, said he'd been doing that for quite a while. Uh, What we do know for sure is that later that night, Justin Snead, the 19-year-old maintenance man at the motel, takes his keys and an aluminum baseball bat and goes to room 102, waking Barry up. There was a struggle and Justin just starts swinging away. There was blood all over the walls, the floors, the bed, everywhere. Wait, Um, why? Well, we, yeah. (laughs) Interesting. He he says because Richard told him to do it. But the scene shows that Barry held up one hell of a fight, but that Justin overpowered him. It was brutal. I mean, it was just really brutal what he did. So Justin cleans himself up a little bit drives Barry's car to a credit union and steals all the money that was in the front seat of the car, the $3,000. He didn't know about the money in the trunk. Richard Glossop claims that Justin showed up at his room with a black eye and tells him a window was blown up in room 102 because there were some drunks fighting in there. And Richard says, Oh, we'll put some plexiglass on it in the morning. No worries. And as Justin is leaving, he says, Oh, and I killed Barry. Uh, Richard says, yeah, Richard says Justin was a really odd guy and he told crazy stories before, so he didn't really take him seriously. So let's talk about Justin Sneed for a minute. He was 19 years old in 1997. Okay. Um, I was 10. I was 10 years old. uh, Yeah, me too. I was 11. And he'd been working at the motel for about three months when the crime occurred. He dropped out of high school in the eighth grade and he worked with a roofing crew on occasion and did some handyman repairs at the motel in exchange for room and board. Uh, he was a pretty heavy drug user. And by the time he was 19, he already had several violent acts on his arrest record. Ugh. The next morning, Richard fixes the glass in the room, apparently having no idea that inside was the body of his boss, which I will grant is weird. I've never replaced a window. But apparently you don't have to go inside the room to replace it. Okay. But if there's no window, you can see through. Well, there was curtains. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know.
1: That is weird. I feel like icky about that, but continue.
0: Okay. So Glossop left early that afternoon to buy his girlfriend an engagement ring, which ended up being terrible timing. The police would later use this as evidence that he had used the money from Barry, but uh, everybody just calmed down because the ring only cost $100. Oh, good night. (laughs) No, sir. People start noticing that Barry's missing. Police arrive, as does Cliff Everhart, who says he's a bounty hunter slash security guard. Uh, he was, <laughs> yeah. He this guy is a creep. Everhart sent Sneed to look through the rooms, so police think it's already been done, and they just stop looking through the rooms. But neither Sneed nor Everhart are actual members of law enforcement, so why they just took the word of them is confused me. That was confusing. So when police start showing up, Justin takes off, and he isn't seen again. When Glossop talks to Everhart, he decides not to divulge his meeting with Justin from the night before, or at least not to tell them that he said that he had killed Barry, which he says is because he didn't really know what was going on yet. Again, Everhart's not a cop. At one time, he was a U.S. Marshal, but at this point, he was working as Barry's security guard in exchange for 1% ownership at the motel. Finally, at 10 p.m., Everhart and a police officer break into 102 and find Barry's body. Everhart starts shifting police to Glossop because he says he was acting weird and his stories were inconsistent. So police just locked onto Glossop and never really let off. And I feel like this is something that happens in pretty much every single wrongful conviction case I've ever read about. The police come up with a theory, usually pretty early on. It's usually based on some sort of evidence or something, but... Once they have that theory, they never really let go of it. They start twisting evidence and witness statements to back up that theory instead of letting the facts form their theory.
1: For sure. Um, I mean, if you pull back the curtain of how we even started on this podcast a little bit, it was because I late night texted you about the Adnan Syed case, (laughs) um, which we won't get into, but was definitely like, I felt that enough things were not looked into that I was like texting you late night like oh my gosh what about this person what about this and this reminds me of that so much and I
0: think you responded to that text and was like wait till I tell you about this case and yeah Mm -hmm. it's crazy it's crazy it's funny that you brought up Ednan because I was actually about to say that with his case it was a phone call like somebody called in and said you should look at the boyfriend and Mm -hmm. yeah uh, Ednan Syed, and he, which he wasn't even the boyfriend at the time. And so the police looked into him and they never they never let go of that. I'm also really bothered by the fact that Glossop's behavior was made such a big deal of. The fact that he bought his girlfriend a hundred dollar engagement ring, as if that proves he just fell into a ton of cash or something. He's just rolling in it. Like what like, and, and the opinion of that motel clerk who said he was acting so weird that day, it reminds me of the Amanda Knox case, you know? Like I- say that oh my god I was just about to
1: say that I don't have a ton of true crime like experience at all but I did read that book and watch the Netflix and they cling so much to how she responded which I've not been in a ton of traumatic situations but I have been in a few things where
0: I I mean how can you anticipate how someone is going to respond no and you can't and it's funny because People behave strangely when strange things happen. It's just always conjecture. She was acting weird. She, he was doing this weird thing. Sometimes it can be used to corroborate things, Mm -hmm. but you can't just pin an entire case on someone's odd behavior, especially when cops don't really have a background in psychology or human behavior. So how are they supposed to be experts on what's normal with behavior? So anyway, the cops are able to figure out really early on that Justin Sneed was involved, but the cops were just convinced that Glossop was part of it. So let's talk about these cops because <laughs> they make me so mad. Bob bemo I'm not sure if it's Bemo or Bemo, but I don't really care because I really hate him. He was the head detective. <laughs> he was the head detective on Barry Treese's case. And this guy is a piece of work. When he was being interviewed in this documentary, I just wanted to like punch him or shake him or like... He actually said in this documentary, and this is just a, almost a direct quote, people that are all standing up for Richard Glossop didn't see what his actions caused to Barry Van Trees. If they only knew the brutality that was involved in the homicide, I wonder if they would still stand up for him. He didn't commit the crime. Justin Sneed was behind the brutality. Like that's him talking today. We all know Justin Sneed actually committed the murder. The cops know it. We know it. He's in prison so for it. Is the question just
1: if, Glossop pay. Like we know that Justin Sneed did the act. Mm -hmm. It's just whether or not he was paid off or
0: requested by. Exactly. But who
1: did the actual murder is not in the question.
0: Correct. Okay. Everybody knows it was Justin Sneed. His DNA is all over the place. He's admitted to doing it. So the fact that this cop is like, people are standing up for Richard Glossop, but if they knew the brutality his actions caused, I'm like, Justin, Justin did it like Richard didn't. It's very frustrating. So Bemo interviewed a few witnesses on the scene. Uh, several people brought up Sneed, but he was nowhere to be found. Um, so he set his sights on the manager, Glossop. He grew increasingly suspicious, saying he gave several inconsistent statements. What are these inconsistent statements, you ask? Well, I will tell I you. I did ask. Mm-hmm. I, I am asking. This is me asking. <clears throat> Bemo says that Glossop told Cliff Everhart, the bounty hunter slash security guard, that he saw Barry at 7 in the morning. He then told police he wasn't sure if he'd seen Barry since 8 p.m. Richard says he told them all that he saw Barry at 7.30 the night before. Police decide that this is a serious problem. I see it as Everhart mistaking 7.30 for a.m. instead of p.m., but uh, Okay. Also, people seem to think that your memory is a recording device, and it's just not. Like, it's so insanely fallible. Oh, for sure. And maybe some people do have a better memory than other people, but unless you're Rain Man and you have an eidetic memory, you don't actually remember anything. Your memories are all just whatever version of the story you're telling yourself. And there's actually an amazing episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast on memory, and I highly recommend all members of the police force listen to it because I feel like this is something we hear all the time in these interrogations. His statements were inconsistent or he was lying when they're talking about small details like dates and times. So anyway, BMO had just straight tunnel vision. He knew Justin committed the murder, but for some, whatever reason, he could not get off Glossop. BMO said that Glossop was very arrogant and very cocky, but like I watched the interrogation tapes, they played him in this documentary and he's not cocky. He's just freaking innocent. You know, BMO says Glossop irritated him with his cocky attitude about how he didn't do it. And I guess sentenced him to death for irritating you. Um, Cause literally.
1: If I sentenced everyone to death who irritated (laughs) me, I'd be,
0: look, We'd have no people left on the world. (laughs) Yeah. Literally, if you watch these interrogation tapes, all Glossop is doing is saying, look, I didn't do anything. And it's just pissing BMO off. So he's convinced Richard Glossop is lying, but he can't prove it. They even tell him, if Justin brings your name up in this thing, you're going down for first degree murder. And I want you to remember that because it's important coming up. He said, if Justin brings your name up in this thing. Police interrogate Richard again, and this time his story does have one significant change. He tells them the detail about Snead coming to his door and saying he killed Barry Trees. Glossop hadn't told the police that the first time. He says he was going to tell Bemo until they started accusing him of things, and it made him really nervous to tell them anything. He just stopped trusting them. Meanwhile, Snead had run back to his roofing crew. He was gone about a week and then arrested. And the first thing Snead asked when he's being interrogated is... Uh, what the maximum sentence is for murder one, because he knows that's what he's being charged with. And they tell him the death penalty. And he goes, well, I was afraid of that. (laughs) So I really want to talk about this interrogation because it is batshit how it was run. In a good interrogation, the information will come from the suspect, you know. But when you look at false confessions, you see certain patterns. um, And I'm talking like false confessions a lot of them proven false confessions. And you can see these patterns in them of the police feeding information to the suspect and then the suspect just telling them what they want to hear. So an example of this that anyone can go watch is the interrogation of Jesse Kelly, who was one of the West Memphis Three where three teenagers were convicted. One was put on death row for the murder of these three little boys. And the entire case of the West Memphis Three hung on Ms. Kelly's confession. Um... And if you watch his confession, you can see he didn't know anything about the crime. The cops would ask him a question like, so what did you use to tie up the boys? And he would answer it wrong. He would say, oh, we used rope to tie them up. And the cops would say, no, now we know you did this. We know you're lying. You used uh, shoelaces, didn't you? And Miss Kelly would say, like, "Yeah, we we tied him up with our shoelaces." And the cops are like, "No, no, it was their shoelaces." And I, I'm getting some of the details on that wrong, but it basically that's basically how it went. That's the gist, and it's it's infuriating because he obviously didn't know anything until the police told him.
1: It reminds me of the J in Adnan's case too.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, feeding mm-hmm. them the information to try and get them to say something. The problem with that is the police did not record mm-hmm. <laughs> the <Yeah>. entire <laughs> interrogation. So there's yeah. a lot there's a lot missing. There's like seven hours one day, seven hours of mm-hmm. missing that are unaccounted for. <laughs> yeah. Where they just stopped the tape and then once they got their story straight, then they, yeah, it that's bad. Um, and I think that it's the law now that they have to record the whole thing from start to finish. Probably not because of that, but just, you know, because obviously. Yeah, yeah so, for sure. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. EarnIn is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the EarnIn app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creeper's under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again Visit betterhelp.com slash creepers today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp h e-l p.com slash creepers. Here's Sneed, who's just been told that there's a possibility he will wind up on death row for the murder he committed, the murder they all know he committed because his DNA is all over the crime scene. So Bimo is like, the best thing you can do for yourself is tell us who all was involved. So they're telling him that there will be a benefit to him if he says someone else is involved. So then Bimo tells Sneed, you know, we got rich. He's also under arrest and mm-hmm. he's trying to pin the whole thing on you. Sneed had not brought up Glossop's name at all until BMO gave it to him. So uh, they've given Sneed all the information that he needs at the time to pin it back on Richard. They say we know somebody else is involved and he's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hey, was it rich? Was it Richard Glossop? And so Snead is like, yep. He told me to do it. Um, he says that Glossop said that they would split any money that they got out of Barry. Um, but there was nothing he told the police that the police didn't already think he didn't give them any new information, nothing to prove that he was telling the truth, nothing. So would Snead have given the police Richard's name if the police hadn't told him that's who they wanted him to name? No. No, Well, and we never will know, really, because the cops never gave him the chance. Like, they did it for him. So they made it to where we don't know, you know? Yeah, for sure. So let's talk corroborating evidence, because you're not supposed to be able to be convicted on the word of an accomplice alone, for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, There should be other evidence corroborating it. So Snead tells them they stole $4,000 out of Barry's car, the money that was under the seat. Snead says they split it, giving them about $2,000 a piece. They found about that amount on Snead covered in blood. He'd cut his hand in the attack. He was bleeding all over it while he handled the money. Richard had about $1,700 on him. And so the police said that that was Barry's money, Um, but there was no way to prove it. Richard's money had no blood on it to connect it to the money from Sneed. So it's not great corroborating evidence. And apart from people testifying that he was acting weird that day, that's it. That's all they have on him. Like, that's everything, Uh, which drives me crazy because there was $23,000 in Barry's trunk. So if he was going to murder him, like, wouldn't he have taken that money? Richard Glossop had driven the car before. He knew where the trunk latch was, like, Also, fun fact that $23,000 was stolen later from police custody, according to uh, Glossop's first trial lawyer. So, a lot of just a lot of things in here that make me feel like something bigger was going on. Okay, so let's take a look at Sneed's story. You asked, you know, why. This happened, so this is what he says. Mind you, it's changed a few times. So Sneed had been working at the motel about three months when he said Glossop starts asking him to kill Van trees He says that Glossop wanted to be able to manipulate Van Vantrese's wife into giving him the motels, and he'd let Sneed run one of them. Sneed admits to being stoned the majority of the time that he was at the motel, and he gives three different accounts of how Glossop told him the night of January 6, 1997, to do it. Today, Snead says he was asleep when Glossop came to his room. Uh, sometimes he says he used a master key to enter the room. Sometimes he says that Richard was just banging on the door until Snead answered. And sometimes he says Glossop called him on the phone. Um, but either way, he says Glossop told him had just showed up at the motel and he was willing to up the money to 7500 Which is really weird considering the whole plan was to steal the money out of the car and split it. So I didn't really understand that. But Sneed said he was all like, no, I don't want to do it. And Glossop was like, do it. And being really aggressive. And let's remind ourselves, Sneed is the one with the violent acts on his arrest record. Glossop is the one with no record at all. At trial, Sneed was painted as this helpless dupe who was manipulated by Glossop. And Glossop is painted as this criminal mastermind who wanted to take over the motel. Sneed today... He says he really thought by telling them this story, that he insists is the truth, that the police would allow him to go home. So that's why he said it. Justin Sneed made up a story using information given to him by the police to help himself out of a death penalty sentence. Many of BMO's cases have been reviewed and many convictions have been overturned. BMO Ooh. says, I know, Bimo says in the documentary that he's never put anyone in jail that didn't deserve to be there. Well, he doesn't know that. Well, and his convictions have been overturned. So yeah. <laughs> it's obviously not true. Um, many investigative avenues the detectives could have gone down, but Bemo and his partner Cook were convinced they had their guy and they didn't want to do anything more than that. Um, he said a few other things that were just so annoying. I was arguing with him through the TV. Uh, one was that Justin wasn't smart enough to plan something like this. Something something like what, like breaking into someone's room and beating them with a mat bat and then stealing money out of their car? (laughs) Like Like a breaking and entering and murder. This isn't Ocean's 11. This is like breaking into a room and beating someone to death with a bat. There's no intelligence to that crime.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know that I've only been in, you know, I was in criminal justice major for two semesters and then quickly changed to elementary ed. So, you know, but I feel like Yeah. I mean, you broke into a budget motel and, you know, murdered someone with a baseball bat, and then you exited and then told someone you did it. Right. 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 (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Mastermind doesn't really come as the word that I would
0: use. Yeah. It's, yeah. Another thing that BMO says that drives me nuts is he said, I don't know if Justin intended to kill Barry. Hmm. So how yeah. can you have put Richard Glossop in prison for hiring him to murder Barry if, there, if you don't even think that Justin intended to intended. murder him? Like it was an accident? Yeah. After the first swing, you know, you right. can stop there. Right, right, right. I just can't with this guy. He makes me so mad. And then mm, Bemo actually says he felt sorry for Justin. Remember that quote from the top of the episode where he was like people that are standing up for Richard Glossop, if, would they feel the same if they saw the brutality his actions had caused? But the guy who actually caused that brutality, he's the one that he feels sorry for. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's not cool. a fan either. No. Bemo says Glossop had this control over Sneed. I mean, he really must be a criminal mastermind if he was able to have full control over Sneed after knowing him for three months. Glossop says he could barely get him to do his actual job around the motel. He'd disappear for days mm. at a time and then just show up again. So where's the control there? Bimo left so much stuff undone, but he just insists he did a good job. He says he sleeps just fine at night. So oh. good for him, I guess. He sure yeah, made himself look like an asshole. Yeah, I don't even sleep good at night and I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> So that's all they had on Richard. A murderer saying Richard hired him after the police implicated him by name and $1,700 they found that may or may not have come from Barry's car. No one can put Glossop in the room. No DNA, nothing. But there is DNA for Sneed all over the room. How does that not change their mind? They just believe Sneed.
1: How is this man on death row? I know.
0: Truly. I know. In my notes, I have OMG written with like seven G's. (laughs) Okay, so his first trial comes up and it's just a shit show. His defense attorney, Wayne Fornerat, had never defended a homicide before, much less a capital crime. Mm, That's who you want. It's really not. Even today, he knows he did a crap job. I mean, I kind of feel bad for the guy, but he really did just an insanely terrible job of defending this case. I think his worst mistake was not getting the interrogation tapes into evidence. So the jury never saw how the police led Justin to implicate Richard Glossop. Like they said, this lawyer in the documentary said they really should have, Gone frame by frame through the tape, showing the jury every single step, pointing all those things out. And he didn't do anything with it. By day two of the six day trial, he wanted to take a blind plea, meaning that they would just plead guilty and the judge would just give him whatever sentence the judge wanted to. And Glossop was like, WTF, no. Prosecutors alleged using financial records and witness testimony that Glossop was embezzling money by renting out rooms off the books. The state claims there was $6,000 missing from the inn, but there's no evidence that proves that. It's like they just made it up. Well, even if, like, that doesn't mean you're a murderer. I I mean, I don't know. Like, there's shady pieces
1: there maybe, but, like.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It would just help prove their motive, I think. Sure. And their motive was, like, Barry was getting suspicious that Glossop was Mm -hmm. embezzling, and so he had him killed. Let's talk for a minute about the prosecutor in this case. Bob Macy because he actually might be worse than FEMA <laughs> a Harvard study said that Macy <laughs> sent more people to death row than any other individual district attorney in the United States and he's actually bragged about how many people he's sent to death row yeah Hi. That, that number is 54 by the way 54. Mm. he is one of the nation's most outspoken advocates for the death penalty after the Oklahoma City bombing so we kind of talked about opinions about the de- death penalty at the top a little bit. But I want to say here, the, the main reason that I am so against the death penalty is because of the chances of executing an innocent person. Um, since 1973, there have been 144 exonerations of death row inmates. Do you know how hard it is to get exonerated? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, but I assume it's very difficult. It It's almost impossible because it, I mean, you yeah. know, in our system, we, it's supposed to be, doesn't always work out this way. It's supposed to be you're innocent until proven guilty. But mm-hmm. once you are proven guilty, or, or once you have a guilty verdict, I should say, it's almost impossible to prove that you're innocent. The burden of proof of innocence is insanely high. It usually takes DNA evidence to prove that it wasn't you. And a lot of the times you have to prove who did do it to prove you didn't. So this can be really hard, especially in Glossop's case because we all know he didn't do the actual murder. No one is even claiming he did. So he just has to prove that he hadn't had a conversation with Sneed that Sneed says they had. Which is really hard. I mean, think about all the things we get accused of just, I mean, obviously not murder,
1: but just like little things and trying to prove that you didn't do it. I mean, I think about this all the time around the house. Like, I wasn't the one that left this out or that, you know, like, it's so hard to prove that you didn't do something.
0: Yeah, it's really hard to prove a negative to prove you're not lying about. Yeah, it's very hard. So he's convicted, found guilty, sentenced to death. But when the case went to appeals, amazingly, all five judges unanimously agreed to throw out the conviction and he got a new trial which almost never happens. Like Glossop gets a second chance. It's basically like winning the lottery and it starts out looking really, really good. He got this new attorney, Lynn Birch, who decides to actually do his job and investigate the case. He interviews witnesses that were never interviewed by police. He has his PI investigate Everhart, that bounty hunter slash security guard who just seemed pretty shady. And he'd been pretty damning with his testimony in the first trial. They found witnesses that were saying he was involved with drugs and prostitution and that he'd been seen with Sneed before the murder. When the lawyer's PI went to investigate those claims at the motel, Everhart tried to intervene and stop the investigation. So you want to talk about suspicious behavior? Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out Bob Macy, the prosecutor in love with the death penalty, he's actually a lying liar who lies. So in 2001, the FBI investigate him and his forensic analyst, Joyce Gilchrist. She was always able to give amazing testimony on blood, hair, semen, and fabrics that really swayed juries and judges. And she assisted Macy on getting death penalty convictions on 23 people and convict thousands of others. But it turns out she has tampered with and falsified evidence in numerous cases. Oh, damn it! <laughs> damn it, Joyce! Why, Dad, Joyce? God, Dad, you have one job to do, Joyce. <laughs> Just do it right. Neither Bob nor Joyce were prosecuted, which drives me Mm -hmm. nuts, but several of their cases started, started being reviewed and overturned. In fact, most of the cases they reviewed were overturned, so it makes me wonder why they haven't just reviewed all of them. She was in charge of Glossop's evidence. So it's interesting that in 1999, a box of evidence in his case that included deposit books and receipt books that could have proved that there were no shortages at the motel since the prosecution was saying he was this criminal mastermind who'd been skimming from the motel and had Barry killed when he started getting suspicious, police claimed the case was closed, so they destroyed it. But in 1999, <laughs> what are you doing? The mimosa. <laughs> I would like to let all of our listeners know that it is 1.30 in the afternoon and someone went to brunch. I apologize. Guilty as charged. So police came, claimed that the case was closed, so they destroyed it. But in 1999, Glossop was two years away from his appeal. And with death penalty cases, you get like a million appeals. So yeah. their evidence should never be destroyed. So it's just wrong that the case was closed. I don't know if it's a lie or a mistake, but they were wrong. And this box was destroyed before even his second trial. How and it was a under- that? I know. And it was under Joyce Gilchrist, Gilchrist's watch that the box was destroyed. So his first lawyer was terrible. He didn't even use these deposit books and receipt books to show he hadn't been skimming. But his next lawyer would have, but didn't even have a chance. Yeah. Yeah. So the second trial is scheduled for 2003. So we're talking about six years after his conviction. But a few days before his new attorney, who had been working incredibly hard on the case, a few days before the trial, he was accused by the DA of threatening Justin Sneed, and he was removed from the case. Wait, sorry. Mm
1: -hmm. Who was accused of threatening Justin Sneed?
0: His new attorney, attorney. Lynn Birch, yeah, who was, like, working really hard and doing, like, really, like, was a good lawyer. So Glossop was assigned two new attorneys who had just six months to prepare a defense. He finally gets his trial in 2004, but it goes just as badly as the first trial. They didn't Mm -hmm. point out all the changes to Sneed's story, including how he even changed the story of the murder. First, he said he killed Barry with a baseball bat, then with a knife, and then way later said Glossop gave him a hammer and told it to do it right now. They didn't call any expert witnesses. They barely cross-examined Sneed. And really, they just made him look more credible on their cross-examination, which honestly is incredibly hard to do. I've watched several interviews with this guy, and he just makes no sense ever. Even when he's not talking about the case, he's just rambling. Does this come up at the end, like where he is? Because I'm very curious if he's like... It does. Yes, it does. Okay, great. Yeah, Yep. yep. But the state had a good story. They had a motive that they just made up. And like I said, they made Glossop out to be this manipulative psychopath who wanted to take control of the motels. And if the state has a good enough story, it's easier to get a jury to buy it. Okay. So like I said at the top of the episode, Glossop has been scheduled for execution three times, meaning he has had three last meals, three nights that he thought would be his last. He has spent 52 days on death row where cells are lit 24-7, cameras and guards are on you 24-7. Meanwhile, sneak. Me. Wait, two things. Okay. One, that it's lit 24-7 if you're mm-hmm. on death
1: row? Yep. I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah. yeah, that's really sad. Second, do we know what his last meals were, perhaps?
0: I don't. I don't know that. I'm sure okay. I could have found that, but I'm not sure. Please research that and just get back to me privately. That's all. <laughs> <awesome. laughs> He's... You know, miserable on death row in these lit cells, twenty four seven. Meanwhile, Ugh. Sneeds over here living it up in a medium security prison, where he says the biscuits are fantastic. So, okay, I yeah. was
1: wondering where he was. Mm-hmm. And the biscuits may be good, but they're no Bojangles biscuits, which I've recently <laughs> really
0: become addicted to. But that's
1: another story.
0: Probably not. He also says he doesn't de- he doesn't think that he deserves to be there because he was honest, Mogad. He says he was, just, he says this is teaching kids that there's no reward for being truthful. Okay. <laughs> I told the truth, so why am I still in prison? Because you murdered somebody with a baseball bat. Yeah. Uh, and no reward for being honest. How about being in a medium security prison and not on death row where Richard yeah, Gossip is? Like, no there's no reward. Your reward. For <laughs> Uh so I said that his last execution in 2014 had a last minute stay due, due to an issue with the lethal injection. Um so what had happened was they'd actually botched two executions before. And they decided to halt all further executions until they got it all figured out. So they have not- watched on him or someone else? No, other two other people okay. that, that had died, but like right. in a way that they're not supposed yeah. to die, you know? So they haven't uh, executed anybody since then, since 2015. But in February of 2020, because 2020 is full of good news, they announced they're ready to start killing people again. So- um, Oh, great. Yeah, it's really bad news for Richard Glossop. And that brings us to today. Uh, He has a new attorney, Don Knight, who says the only hope to find evidence that proves actual innocence, or I'm sorry, he says the only hope for Glossop is to find evidence that proves actual innocence, which would only grant him a new trial, which honestly with wrongful convictions, like that's all I want.
1: Yeah.
0: It seems like Don Knight really has his ducks in a row. So if he gets a new trial, the third time might actually be the charm for him but getting him actual innocence is going to be nearly impossible as there was never any forensic evidence in the case that pointed to Glossop, no money trail apart from that $1,700. So how do you prove actual innocence when you were never really proven guilty in the first place?
1: Right. Like how do you prove innocence when you weren't necessarily so involved in something? Like there are things that happen every day that we're not a part of, but I don't know how you would prove that you're not, you know? Right. This is why when you asked me at the beginning of the episode, like, How do you feel about capital punishment and the death penalty? This is why I don't feel as confident as I used to because my previous feelings would have people like this already executed, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. I've taken to going through because I listen to a lot of of true crime podcasts and podcasts on wrongful convictions, and they always mention the state that they're in um, hasn't actually used the death penalty in 10 years, 20 years, 15 years, whatever in a long time. So <laughs> I start to get this impression that, oh, I guess like people aren't really getting executed anymore. <laughs> I was like, I wonder how we're doing in Texas. So I look it up. <laughs> it's like one a day and which is not funny. I'm not laughing at that at all. I think it's terrible. I feel like beyond a reasonable doubt should not apply in death penalty cases. I think that it should be a hundred percent. Like I know a hundred percent that this person is guilty to give them the death penalty. It shouldn't, there should be no question in your mind. May, did he do it? Did he not? I think he did it. So I'm going to go ahead and give him the death penalty. It's, and really we should Ugh. just do away with it anyway. I'm so excited to see what people think after they hear
1: this. Like after they hear this episode, what do you, people think? Did he do it? Do they not? Like, did I know. Their feelings change based on this. I mean, this has been so interesting to hear about. I have so many questions and. I'm definitely going to go watch this documentary for
0: sure, too. Like, yeah, it's called Killing Richard Glossop. It's really good. Both of his parents have died since he's been in prison. Oh, Um, I know. He has two kids. Don't want anything to do with him anymore. Um, He does have several supporters that are working really hard for him besides his attorney. One is Sister Helen Prejean, who does a lot of work for the wrongfully convicted. She's a staunch opponent of the death penalty. She says, you know, we don't have to kill our own citizens. So why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. And I just feel like what yeah. you said about eye for an eye, that's really the reason. Like people think that justice is an eye for an eye. I'm going to do to you what you did to somebody else. Well, I'm not ever also going to
1: act like I know it. You know, I haven't lost anyway in this, anybody in this way. And so I can't imagine that that to the victim maybe feels like what true justice is.
0: Yeah, I agree. But that's why you cannot make these kinds of choices and these kinds of big decisions emotionally. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to take emotion out when you're dealing with somebody's life. I love Sister Helen Prejean though. Like she's, I feel like she's like a good nun, you know, like she's one of the good ones. And I think that's actually how I found out about Glossop's case was I had started following her for some reason and she was talking about him and I looked into it and then I just kept looking into it. (laughs) And Susan Sarandon is another one of Glossop's most ardent supporters. She actually played Sister Helen Prejean in a 1995 movie called Dead Man Walking, which is about a wrongful conviction, but it's not about Richard Glossop. It's about somebody else that she helped. And that is all that I have on Richard Glossop. I know.
1: Well, not to add to his supporters, but just as we are talking about the times that we're in, you know, a moment of silence for our um, Justice RBG. As oh. you know, and she, um, I know, had some thoughts on the death penalty too, and how, you know, maybe there wouldn't be one if she were, if she were queen. <laughs> um, and so um,
0: I would be, you know. I would be okay with a monarchy if <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg was our queen. Yeah, um, R.I.P.
1: to her for sure. And then, so like in. I said, um,
0: this episode's gonna drop like months from now. But today, yeah. is September nineteenth, we just got the news. Was it yesterday? Yesterday, that yeah. RBG passed away. Um, okay, yeah,
1: so she, you know, she passed away yesterday, and people have been posting a lot on social media. Um, and so I saw someone post a quote about, you know, there's been a lot of famous quotes about her, but one was that if she were queen, that death penalty wouldn't be, you know, something that should be in support of. And it just makes me think about how things in our country are so swayed one way or the other on this type of topic. But Mogab. No,
0: we haven't been recording. No, we've been recording, but I just Googled Ruth Bader Ginsburg death penalty so that I could get a quote for her, Mm -hmm. about her, and I don't know if this is a creepy Google thing or if this would have happened if somebody else Googled it, but the first link I clicked on is talking about Richard Glossop. Wait, what does it say? I didn't know that. Okay. I just said that she was so like not this in support. Is from, this is from deathpenaltyinfo.org and it's okay. Justice Stephen Breyer on the death penalty. Supreme Court Justice Justice Stephen Breyer discusses the relationship between American laws and those of other countries in his dissent in Glossop v. Gross, which questioned the constitutionality of the death penalty. In an interview the interview with the National Law and Journal, I just Googled the same thing. Yeah, Breyer summarized the core reasons underlying his gloss of dissent. You know, sometimes people make mistakes executing the wrong person. It's arbitrary. There's lots of evidence on that. Justice Potter Stewart said it would. It was like being hit by lightning whether the person is actually executed. If carried out, a death sentence on average takes place now 18 years after it's imposed. That 18? was just about Stephen Breyer, but I, I thought it was funny. Yeah. I Because, um, okay, let me see. Let me find where they're talking about. Okay, on the death penalty. Here it is. She was asked about the future of death penalties in 2017. And she answered, the only comment I would make is that the incidence of capital punishment has gone down, down, down. So that now I think there are only three states that actually administer the death penalty. Well, we are one of them, Texas. Yeah. And not even whole states, but particular areas of states. It may depend on who's the district attorney. We may see an end to capital punishment by attrition, as there are fewer and fewer executions. Her comments during a talk at Stanford University: she responded, "If I were queen, there would be no death penalty." Yeah,
1: yeah, I Quite saw a girl. that post, and I just think of her.
0: Yeah. Gosh. Oh my
1: gosh, how crazy! The Google machine is wild.
0: I know that is funny.
1: Can I tell everyone what you're wearing? <laughs> sure. In true creep fashion, what are you wearing? <laughs> well, K Deb, as I also call her, is wearing a purple tie-dye Hail hey, you cool cats and kittens" T-shirt. So, yeah, um, I actually,
0: favorite. I actually had a friend come over last week, and she saw me wearing this shirt, and she was like, "None of the proceeds from that shirt actually went to Carol Baskin." <laughs> Wait, like, no, no, I bought it off Etsy.
1: Carol Baskins is truly the worst, but as someone who grew up with a pet mountain lion, as you know, um, <laughs> as a child, true story, I feel like, you know, that's how you build character growing up with a wild cat in your backyard. So
0: sure, I, I, had, I approve. I had peacocks in my backyard, but um, <laughs> no, no tigers. In every episode, I really want to find um, a charity to support that Mm-hmm. links to something that we're talking about, like some small way that we can help these causes. Because otherwise, I just feel so helpless. Like, what can I do? So yeah, the charity to know all that info. And then like, yeah, you're well, doing all the research. And also, I think there are so many charities that get so much attention. And those ones tend to be just like really poorly run. They don't really do what they're saying they do. So I also mm-hmm. want to try to find these smaller foundations that you know, are really trying to do the good work. So the charity I wanted to promote for this episode is actually sister Helen's foundation. It's called the ministry against the death penalty, Mm -hmm. MADP. And this is from their website. They recognize that the criminal justice system in the United States disproportionately affects poor people and people of color and that prison reform and the abolition of capital punishment are necessary to bring about systemic change. We use personal story and the power of the arts to promote critical reflection on civil rights issues and to inspire people to action. So I've donated a small amount to this ministry. If you would like to donate, you can do so at sisterhelen.org donate. And um, if this podcast ever ends up going anywhere and um, we make any money from it, I'm planning on donating a portion of that to these um, foundations. Yeah. Oh, I'll do that too. We should put that link in our bio. Do we have an IG account? Uh, We do. You can find us on Instagram at creeperspod. And you can also find us on Twitter at creeperspod. Or you can email us at creeperspod at gmail.com. So let us know if you have any uh, case suggestions, if you have any feedback on this episode. We'd love to hear from all of you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll know exactly when our next episode drops, when I'll tell Mogab all about how Coco Chanel was actually a registered Nazi spy during World War II. Bye, peeps and creeps.